Our beer of the week this week is All Day Haze by Founders Brewery in Michigan. It's a hazy IPA, and I feel like we needed to get a beer from around the Great Lakes area since we're doing the NFC North this week. Makes a lot of sense. I'm your host, Stephen Patton, joined by my co-host and friend, Jacob LaGuire, here on Perfect Takes. The title of this episode is called Polar Opposites. I think it reflects the difference in team building philosophies right now between the Bears, who are big spenders this year, and the Vikings, who had to cut a few players to stay under budget. I think this train of thought follows with the Packers approach in the drafts, having an analytically sound approach, taking premium positions early and often, whereas the Lions invested in non-premium positions with the additional draft capital they had this offseason. We'll go in the order the Panthers play the NFC North during the regular season, which means we'll start with the reigning division champs, the Minnesota Vikings. Reigning division champs is right. And I think the main catalyst for that success had to be how first-year head coach Kevin O'Connell was able to run the offense and scheme Justin Jefferson open. And this was an offense last year that was eighth in points per game at nearly 25 points and was overall just really, really strong. After the Rams won the Super Bowl in 2021, we saw their offensive coordinator, Kevin O'Connell, get hired as the new head coach. He ran 11 personnel on 74% of the offensive plays and deployed Jefferson all over the field, running routes Cooper Cup, Robert Woods, and Odell Beckham had run in that system. He's a true disciple of Sean McVay, if you will. He helped take the offense from 12th in yards and 14th in points in Mike Zimmer's last year to 7th in yards and 8th in points this past season. I expect them to be a top 10 offense again this year. As do I, and it all starts with their quarterback, Kirk Cousins. But Kirk Cousins is kind of an odd case. He's going to be 35 when the season starts, and he's not signed to the Vikings past this season unless you want to include void years. It'll be interesting to see what route the Vikings take with the QB spot of the future, granted that they almost certainly won't be bad enough to land a top five pick in this year's class, which is probably going to be necessary to obtain one of the consensus top QBs at the moment. They haven't brought in their quarterback of the future yet, so that should be an interesting narrative, especially going into next offseason. The new Netflix show Quarterback highlights Kirk Cousins being hit quite a bit, which isn't the best for an older quarterback. Now, this comes in spite of having the third best left tackle last year in Christian Derisau. The Vikings offensive line finished 22nd in pass block win rate and 18th in run block win rate. That doesn't really mix well with the fact that Cousins ranked 24th in time to throw according to next-gen stats. Now, their offensive line starters are all homegrown talent since 2018. They were taken in either the first or second round. We already mentioned Darisau at left tackle, but you have Ezra Cleveland at left guard, Garrett Bradbury at center, Ed Ingram at right guard, and Brian O'Neill at right tackle. With the addition of TJ Hawkinson and Jordan Addison over the past year, Hopefully, Kevin O'Connell can scheme quick throws to mitigate how long Cousins holds on to the ball and ultimately how much he's getting hit. I think Cousins and Hawkinson had a good rapport for the few games that they had together following the trade deadline, but I really liked the addition of Jordan Addison, and I think he's going to help the offense out a ton. He was probably the best route runner in the draft, in my opinion. and He's a guy that's just going to be able to get open no matter what especially when you have the best defenders guarding Jefferson and Hawkinson in some cases. And despite the loss of future Triple Crown winner this season, Adam Thielen, the starters for the Vikings' uh, skill positions look pretty good. I think we, uh, we all know how good Jefferson is. We've touched on him a bit. Uh, I'm quite high on Jordan Addison. K.J. Osborne, I would say, is one of the better wide receiver threes in the league. And T.J. Hawkinson, who is also due for an extension, had a good year last year after coming to Minnesota midseason. The only main loss they have on that front, other than Thielen, is running back Dalvin Cook, who will be replaced by the incumbent Alexander Madison, who's been everyone's favorite fantasy football handcuff the past three or four seasons. I think Madison is going to shine in his new role as RB1, especially considering the fact that Kevin O'Connell gave Dalvin Cook the majority of touches last year for their running back room, keeping Madison fresh. Absolutely. Now, I'm not as high as you are on Adam Thielen, but another potential cut they may have this 
coming next offseason is their aging star Harrison Smith. He's currently 34 years old and really is one of the last pieces from the Mike Zimmer regime. The team would take on a little under $8 million in dead cap. This is a Vikings team that Quezé is slowly starting to rebuild and retool. The front office cut a lot of dead weight and are 10th in effective cap space next offseason. So they should be able to make a few splash moves, whether that's extending Kirk Cousins and Justin Jefferson, and maybe adding a piece or two on the defensive side of the ball. What do you think a Jefferson contract extension would look like? I mean, it's got to be huge. I, I think whenever Justin Jefferson is extended, he will join a very, very exclusive club. According to Over the Cap, there have been seven wide receivers since 1996 to have received a contract with an inflated value of at least $30 million in annual average value. Those seven receivers include Jerry Rice, Randy Moss, Larry Fitzgerald, Calvin Johnson, DeAndre Hopkins, Devontae Adams, and Tyreek Hill. Now, that's, that's a pretty illustrious list. And if Jefferson resets the market, which I expect his contract will, we're going to see something probably around $130 million over four years. This would put Jefferson's annual average value around $32.5 million a year. He'd probably have around $80 million fully guaranteed at signing, if I had to guess right now. It's a pretty good paycheck, and I think they're going to have to extend them if they want that offense to stay humming for the next few years. But the other side of the ball, transitioning to defense, I think the Vikings look to be in a much different spot this year. They've lost a lot of veteran talent like Patrick Peterson, uh, Zadarius Smith, and Dalvin Tomlinson. Both went to the Browns uh, on the defensive side of the ball, and they're going to be relying on kind of mid-level free agents like Marcus Davenport and Byron Murphy to replace their production, as well as some of the younger players they've drafted from a year ago, like Andrew Booth Jr., the corner, and the linebacker, Brian Azamoa. My main area of concern is going to be the defensive line, where the Vikings lost both Smith and Tomlinson, like we stated, to the Browns. We talked about that in length last week. And there have been talks about a Daniil Hunter trade as well. Mentioned above, Marcus Davenport was the big fish they brought in for that defensive line. But he's underwhelmed relative to the price the Saints had to pay to acquire him when he was drafted. And I have doubts he can be as productive as Darius Smith was last year. The Vikings also added Dean Lowry from the Packers and drafted Jaquel and Roy to play in the middle of that defensive line. And they're going to need heavy contribution from both if they want that defense to stay above water. It will be interesting to see how Brian Flores schemes kind of the defense. Last year in Arizona, though, Byron Murphy saw a lot of snaps as an outside corner in base packages. But when the defense featured nickel personnel, we saw him move inside to the slot, which can be very important with all the various motions to account for wide receivers that move to the slot for mismatch purposes. Outside of Murphy, though, on that back end, the Vikings are going to rely on second-year corner Andrew Booth Jr., who should have a huge role returning this season after having a season, uh, have, after having a season ending injury, uh, meniscus tear. Uh, another guy to keep your eye out on is Makai Blackman out of LSU, who you can probably pencil him in as a starting cornerback as well, uh, especially in those nickel packages I was alluding to earlier. Cameron Bynum is currently the starting free safety slated to start next to Harrison Smith. Their first-round pick last year, Lewis Sign, is making phenomenal progress after suffering a compound fracture in his leg. If he can return the form, he should be a positive for a very weak secondary at the moment. Yeah, I forgot about the uh, Lewis Sign draft pick. He was one of my favorite safeties last year. And another pick they made last year was Brian Asimoa II from Nebraska. He's slated to be one of the starting inside linebackers alongside Jordan Hicks, whom they added in free agency from Arizona. And like you touched on a few minutes ago, I think the most important addition to the Vikings on this side of the ball was the hire of Brian Flores as their new defensive coordinator. I think he'll be able to manufacture a better scheme for the Vikings this year than last year, given their personnel, but I'm still uh, still a bit worried about that side of the ball. And to kind of wrap up the Vikings as a whole, they were a team that I think were too good for their own good last year. They had a negative point differential despite winning 13 games, which is crazy. And this has left them in somewhat of a limbo state. 
Do they rebuild and tear it down, completely ignoring the success of a 13-win season in a head coach's first year? Or are they going to stay the course? I think uh, the GM, Kwesi Adolfo Mensa, has done a pretty good job straddling that line between competitiveness and rebuilding. But pretty soon they're going to have to choose, and Cousins' age may, may make the choice for them. I honestly feel bad for Kwesi. The bar was set really high after the Vikings won 13 games last year. They didn't dominate their opponents, and regression to the mean should be expected. Roster-wise, this appears to be an improved offense. But like you said at the top of this segment, they lost a lot of key pieces on defense. Now, if Brian Flores can have this defense playing around the 20th best unit, their offense may be able to carry them to a playoff appearance and potential a little run, win a game or two. Now, another team in the division with special pieces on offense, but lacks a little oomph on the defense, are the Detroit Lions. Well, the Vikings were almost too successful last season. The Lions were a team that was on the rise and played exceptionally well down the stretch, especially on offense. Under first-year offensive coordinator Ben Johnson, the Lions' offense was very potent, and they only got better in that department, in my opinion. The wide receiver room will take a early hit. DJ Chark left in free agency to the Carolina Panthers. Jamison Williams is serving a six-game suspension due to a gambling infraction. And then they also saw Jamal Williams depart in free agency and traded DeAndre Swift around the draft. But that came after signing and drafting David Montgomery and Jamar Gibbs, who I think overall are definitely an upgrade in the running back room, which is a plus, especially behind the offensive line that they're rolling out. I agree. I think as a whole, both running backs are an upgrade to their respective counterpart. I think Gibbs especially is going to make a pretty big difference this year. I mean, he's super fast. Uh, He's pretty hard to tackle. And given their early wide receiver woes, uh, Gibbs was Alabama's number one receiver last year. So he should be able to help in that department with Texas routes and wheel routes, uh, just giving Goff an extra receiver. And another person that they're attempting to replace is TJ Hawkinson, who we mentioned in the Viking section. And they're replacing him by bringing in Sam Laporta, who was drafted early in the second round, the tight end out of Iowa, who was one of my favorite players in the class. And I think he was pretty underutilized and should be able to gain early traction with Jared Goff with these wide receiver uh, woes while Jameson Williams is suspended. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I'll get a little bit more into Gibbs and Laporta later on, but I really do want to emphasize kind of the investment this team has made in the offensive line. Almost $15 million in cap this year alone, which is uh, a little under 25%. I think it's like around 21, 22 are allotted to simply four guys on the offensive line. You have Taylor Decker as your left tackle, Ragnar O as your center, Sewell as your right tackle and Baitai as your right guard. And they're making some good money, and rightfully so. These are some of the best guys at their own positions, and they dominate the trenches. And that's something that's going to pave the way not only for Jamar Gibbs and David Montgomery, but it's going to keep Jared Goff upright in the pocket to deliver throws to wide open wide receivers down the field. Yeah, all things considered, I think the cap hit for that offensive line is a steal. Uh, The Lions have continued to have one of the best offensive lines in the league the past couple years, especially after drafting Panay Sewell. And I would consider that line to be top three, top five in the league at worst. Uh, Jared Goff is just the main question mark on offense. But if Ben Johnson can have him playing at a high level like he was last year, relative to Goff, the offense should continue to be pretty deadly. Goff, however, only has two more years left on his contract. And it's going to be interesting to see how the Lions approach either extending him or pivoting to drafting and finding his replacement. I know they drafted Hendon Hooker this past year, but it seems like he's going to be serving a redshirt year. And he's already on the older side. And I wasn't as high on Hooker as some people, so I'm not too sure that he's the future. But that remains to be seen. And for what it's worth, Goff had the offense operating at a high level last year. So it wouldn't surprise me to see him extended in a manner similar to that of uh, Kirk Cousins 
where he gets that short uh, two, three year guarantee. Absolutely. Looking at Goff's current contract, he's wrapping that up. But if we were to see an extension similar to one of the ones Cousins has signed recently, I think it'd be the one he signed back in 2018. It was an $84 million contract over three years, which was completely guaranteed. Inflated to 2023 salary cap dollars, that contract extension would be appraised at around $105 million right now. Hennon Hooker, like you were you were talking about, feels more like a security blanket rather than the quarterback of the future. So I'd expect them to retain golf as their starting quarterback, especially after this season. He's shown he's a capable starter and a really good offense. The big thing is, is does Ben Johnson depart the next year? And if so, does that diminish what we've seen out of golf? Yeah, that is the question. And kind of like the Vikings, while the offense flourished last season, the Lions' defense leaves a lot to be desired. Their front office clearly agreed, as signaled by their numerous additions to the secondary and free agency, including Cam Sutton from Pittsburgh, touched on him last week, uh, C.J. Gardner-Johnson from Philly, and Emmanuel Mosley from San Francisco, as well as drafting Brian Branch, uh, the safety from Alabama, pretty early. They lost former number three overall pick Jeff Okuda in a trade with Atlanta, but overall, I think the secondary is much deeper and much more well-rounded. You're right about the secondary. However, they did practically nothing to bolster the defensive line. Eight defensive linemen were taken between the Lions' first pick in the draft at pick number 12 and their first pick in the second round at pick 34. A few of those guys include Lucas Van Ness, Miles Murphy, Kalijah Kansi, and Mozzie Smith. What makes it worse is guys like Derek Hall, BJ Ojalari, and Keon White were available at 34, and they didn't go after any of them. Instead, they traded up for Broderick Martin in the third round this year, who, mind you, was a projected day three pick according to consensus boards. And don't get me wrong, he's got great height, great weight. He's a big boy, but he's a project. And it's frustrating to see them pass up on a guy like Tyree Wilson at six, who I think is a better prospect coming out than Aiden Hutchinson was last year, and instead traded back and took Alvin Kamara, Light, and Jameer Gibbs, and George Kittle Light, and Sam Laporta with the picks that they got from that trade. Even if those players hit the 90th percent outcomes as players, it's hard to fathom why they passed up the opportunity to add another elite edge rusher or interior defensive lineman within the first two rounds. Yeah, I agree. I think the Lions definitely would have benefited from adding some premium uh, D-line talent this offseason, but they went in a different direction. I also think uh, the Tyree Wilson versus Aiden Hutchinson conversation is going to be one that uh, it's going to be a fun one that we'll have at some point. But the, uh, the Lions used some draft capital on day one on their defense to add Jack Campbell, the linebacker out of Iowa, to the middle of their defense. A guy who should be able to fit the run well, and he's really good in coverage, very athletic. I think he's going to be their green dot at some point this season. You know, the guy who calls uh, the defenses. And paired with Alex Anzalone, who I believe they re-signed uh, this past year, should improve the middle of their defense tremendously from last season which was the fourth uh, worst in rush defense. They allowed 146 rushing yards per game, which is uh, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And I, personally, I think if you go up against these, these bigger and better offensive lines, they're just going to bully you in the trenches and get guys up to the next level. And if I have a 300-pound guy on Jack Campbell, it really doesn't matter how great Campbell is. I've pretty much nullified him with with kind of some of that guard play and, and moving up to the second level. So this is, this is why I get frustrated at looking at what Brad Holmes did. Couldn't wrap my mind around kind of some of the stuff he did and had to look around to find answers into his background. And he initially was the director of college scouting for Les Snead from 2013 to 2020. He watched in-house talent blossom in Robert Quinn, Michael Brockers, and Aaron Donald, all of whom were taken in the first round within a four-year span. They went out and signed talented in free agency, like guys like Nadama Kinsu, Sebastian Joseph Day, Clay Matthews, Leonard Floyd. They made trades for Dante Fowler and Vaughn Miller the two years they made the Super Bowl. 
You see, this is the philosophy I thought Brad Holmes was cut from. You 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 throw bodies and and darts at the wall when it comes to the defensive line. However, in the eight years Brad Holmes actually worked with the Rams, there were a lot of parallels to the draft we just saw from Detroit. The first three rounds, the Rams had 25 picks from 2013 to 2020. They spent five of those picks on safeties, four on running backs, and two on off-ball linebackers, which comprises about 44% of the picks they had over that eight-year span. Now, who do you think the Lions take with three of their first four picks this past year? Running back, off-ball linebacker, and safety. You know how many picks in the first three rounds the Rams spent on the defensive line when Brad Holmes was with them? Exactly one. And that one was Aaron Donald in 2014. Well, to be fair, Brad Holmes did double that number in last year's draft with Aiden Hutchinson and Josh Pascal. And also to be fair to Brad Holmes, with less need, he probably didn't see too many early picks uh, being taken. So he couldn't really see a lot of D-linemen be taken early because, you know, less need says F them picks and trades them all away. Which is true, and those are very valid points. It's just we're seeing echoes and parallels to what we saw prior. Oh, for sure. And uh, to kind of wrap up uh, the Detroit Lions, it seems like a lot of goodwill that the Lions decision makers built up last season in terms of the good decisions they made, which were pretty analytically minded and friendly to the philosophy of the analytics community. That goodwill was used up and faded away this offseason. Uh, Brad Holmes didn't care to select the premium positions with any of the top selections they possessed in the draft. Uh, their first premium pick was Hendon Hooker at 65. Now, I'm, I'm spending a huge amount of time knocking Brad Holmes. And in his defense, when he was with the Rams, they also used 44% of their picks on premium positions in the first three rounds. On positions like offensive tackle, wide receiver, and quarterback. And likewise, in his first two drafts with the Lions, he spent first-round picks at tackle in Penny Sewell, wide receiver in Jamison Williams, and like you alluded to, this past year, third-round pick with Hendon Hooker. He also used three picks in the top 100 selections the past two drafts on defensive linemen, Aiden Hutchinson, Josh Pascal, Broderick Martin. So at the end of the day, the Lions front office just values positions differently, and that's reflected in their draft selections and free agent spending regardless if that philosophy is properly optimized. Now, moving on to another franchise that is looking to take the next step in the division are the Chicago Bears. A lot of people are anticipating fields to take a huge leap going into 2023 with the addition of DJ Moore. We've seen a similar narrative over the past few years with the Bills and the Eagles. The front offices traded for number one wide receivers to help with the development of their franchise quarterback. Could that be the case this year with the Chicago Bears? I think the Bears organization and the Bears fans are hoping so. Uh, while Fields didn't make a ton of uh, great decisions last year from a passing standpoint, his athletic ability and feel for escaping tacklers allowed him to have a pretty spectacular rushing season. And hopefully this season, uh, as a Justin Fields QB keeper in fantasy football, he can mimic that performance and improve as a passer now that Chicago has invested in actual NFL receivers. Absolutely. He should he should definitely take a step with what the wide receiver room looks right now. According to ESPN analytics, the overall wide receiver score for Stefan Diggs the year before he was traded was an 82. His first year in Buffalo, his overall score was a 91, an impressive nine-point increase into elite stratosphere. A.J. Brown, his final year with the Titans, had an overall score of 78. His first year in Philadelphia saw a 10-point increase to a score of 88. D.J. Moore's overall score last year in Carolina? A whopping 44. I definitely think Fields and Moore will benefit from each other, but I don't know if it's going to be the needle mover a lot of people think it is. Now, in DJ's defense, Diggs had Cousins in Minnesota, who's at least an average quarterback, and A.J. Brown had Tannehill, who showed spurts of being a top-10 quarterback at times in Tennessee, who 
ultimately are just better quarterbacks than Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold, which limited DJ Moore's production and probably impacted that overall score. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't place DJ Moore on the level of Stephon Diggs or AJ Brown, but he's still a great receiver and he's going to be the best receiver in Chicago since at least Allen Robinson, maybe dating back to the Alshon Jeffrey, Brandon Marshall days. Uh, Moore's addition should allow players like Darnell Mooney, Chase Claypool, uh, Velas Jones, who they drafted a couple years ago, Tyler Scott, whom they drafted this year, should allow them more opportunities to play against uh, not cornerback ones. And another area the Bears were dedicated to improving this offseason was their offensive line, which surprisingly, when I was uh, researching the NFC North for this podcast, it, the line wasn't as bad a unit as some made it appear. They were second in ESPN's pass block win rate and fifth in run block win rate. So overall, not too bad, but there's a pretty big narrative that the line needed to improve substantially. And so Chicago added Nate Davis uh, from Tennessee and free agency, and he's gonna he should slot in as the right guard starter. Charlotte alum, we got to shout him out, every Charlotte yep. alum. Yes, sir. And then they drafted Darnell Wright from the University of Tennessee at pick 10 to be their right tackle of the future. And I think we all saw what Darnell Wright was able to do last season, especially to elite rushers like Will Anderson. So he should, uh, him and Davis should have that right side of the line in good hands. And with those additions, along the along with the continued growth of Braxton Jones at left tackle and Tevin Jenkins at left guard, the Bears uh, already slept on offensive line should be looking even better this season. To add a premium talent at right tackle as Riley Reese replacement only boosts that unit. I'm really excited to see the rushing attack Luke Getze deploys with Justin Fields, Khalil Herbert, Deontay Foreman, and rookie Roshan Johnson. They brought in Robert Tunyon via free agency, and I believe they want to be able to punish defenses and nickel packages while still having vertical threats to mitigate heavy boxes with eight or more defenders. Yeah, this might be the best power run offense in the league this year. And as a whole, the offense should be taking tremendous strides. With another year at the helm, Luke Getze should be able to know what schemes and what play designs fit fields the best to where he doesn't have to make every play a scramble out of pressure. All these aforementioned additions across the offense should also lead to more explosive plays and more consistent, like, I don't, like three to four yard gaining plays that we need. And then looking at the defense, while I feel good about what the Bears did holistically on offense, the improvements on defense weren't as spread out. The obvious big money additions were important to how coach Matt Eberflus wants to operate his defense, which is a strong middle field presence. Uh, that's pretty much highlighted by what he did as the Colts uh, defensive coordinator kind of going off on a tangent. Brought in eight uh, off-ball linebackers, drafted six, uh, added two in free agency. And that's kind of reflected with what they did this offseason and bringing in Tremaine Edmonds and TJ Edwards. All that aside, I do feel as though some noticeably weak areas were neglected, and particularly the defensive line. Like you said, I don't I don't feel nearly as confident about this side of the ball for the Bears. I'm glad they drafted two interior defensive linemen and Javon Dexter and Zach Pickens, while also shoring up the linebacker position with Tremaine Edmonds and TJ Edwards. There are still a lot of questions around who's getting after the quarterback off the edge and how the young secondary will perform in year two of the Eberflus system. We should see improvements, but that should be expected after ranking dead last in points allowed last year. Yeah, in regards to the defensive line, I also worry about who's going to rush the passer. It looks like they might be treating it as a committee, which doesn't always work out. I really like Javon Dexter. He was one of my favorite player, uh, defensive line players in this class. But I'm not sure a projected starting, this is from our lads, uh, projected starting defensive line consisting of Demarcus Walker, Andrew Billings, Justin Jones, and Travis Gibson is much of a threat to really dominant offensive lines. I do like uh, who's listed as a reserve. He could probably end up starting this year. Dominique Robinson. As an edge rusher, I think he's going to be a uh, kind of a breakout candidate this year in the NFL. 
but the group as a whole is pretty worrisome to me. I think there's a bit more optimism with the Bears' young secondary. You have Eddie Jackson and Jalen Johnson returning, and they're really good starters. Um, they've taken Kyler Gordon and Tyreek Stevenson in the second round over the past two drafts. Tyreek Stevenson was your 11th best cornerback in this year's class and had a raw athletic score of 8.89. This feels like a group that will get better as the season goes on. They, they'll have some growing pains, but they could really start clamping down over the last kind of few weeks and kind of heat up towards the end of the season. To kind of wrap up the Bears, as one of, if not the worst uh, team in the league last year, we should ex expect improvement all around from the Bears this upcoming season. Uh, whether it's natural regression, the improvements of a lot of young players, such as Fields or the young secondary, and the addition of good NFL talents like DJ Moore and Tremaine Edmonds, I should allow the Bears to be a lot better. They went into this offseason with a lot of money to spend and a lot of high draft capital. They did a fairly good job, in my, uh, in my opinion. For me, however, they just still aren't good or deep enough as a whole to compete with some of the other teams in this division. It's going to take a, a Josh Allen, Jalen Hurts type leap for Justin Fields, which is, I think, what we're all hoping to see. It's going to take that for them to be able to compete this year. Before I touch on Justin Fields, I just want to say – I don't see how they're going to pressure the quarterback. Matt Eberflus, Alan Williams can deploy various simulated pressures and scheme up exotic blitzes this fall. If they do that effectively, they won't struggle as much. But if they aren't able to kind of procure those, they're going to get bullied by good offensive lines and teams with elite skill position players. Now, overall, I think the team is going to be capped based on Fields' ceiling. He's been compared all offseason quarterbacks like Allen, Hurts, even Tua, who took off in that third year. However, if we look at the production in the first two years from those three quarterbacks, Fields isn't even in that stratosphere. Allen, Hurts, and Tua all had rookie seasons above the 50th percentile and sophomore slumps above the 30th percentile based on EPA per play, which is a good efficiency metric to kind of look at for quarterback production. Fields in his rookie year didn't crack the 40th percentile and fell below the 25th percentile in year two. You can blame it on supporting cast, but at the end of the day, I don't see the jump that the other three quarterbacks made going into their third season. Whether it's, like you said, going back to a supporting cast issue or just the ceiling that you have with Fields as your quarterback. I'm a little more hopeful, but at the end of the day, we'll see. And going over these first three teams, I kind of noticed a pattern that uh, wasn't in my script notes here. Uh, I feel pretty good about the three offenses and not as good about the three defenses. But looking at this fourth team here, the final team that the Panthers are going to play from this division, the Green Bay Packers, it's kind of the other way around. And this final team... They've had Rodgers at the helm for what feels like my entire life. I know that's not true, but it seems like it. And they suddenly have a new face of the franchise in their fourth-year rookie, technically, Jordan Love. We touched on this a lot on our draft podcast series, but this team is probably the biggest wild card, not only in the NFC North, but also the NFC as a whole. In a quarterback-driven league, we've seen plenty of snaps from Cousins, Goff, and Fields to kind of know what they're about and gauge a reasonable ceiling and floor for them and their teams. The Packers' biggest question mark this offseason is the guy at quarterback. What will Jordan Love bring in his first year as a starter? I honestly have no clue. The last time we saw somebody wait this long with the team that drafted them was probably Rodgers. So hopefully Love can replicate some of what Rodgers did early in his career. But with Love's low snap count and, I guess, uninspiring play as a whole from what we've seen, it's tough to gauge what he's going to be able to do this season. Providing a young and inexperienced quarterback easy buttons in the offense rests on the shoulder of the play caller. and a copycat league, the Packers seem to actually be keeping pace with the Super Bowl champion's blueprint. The Chiefs ran 12 personnel, 29% of their offensive snaps last year, with a pass rate of 67%. They were able to take advantage of smaller defensive packages and lighter boxes, 
and in result, punish them through the air. Brian Gutekunst added two tight ends in the draft this past year in Luke Musgrave and Tucker Kraft. Matt LaFleur last year already called 12%, 30% of the time, but he only passed at 43% of those plays. Hopefully we see an increase in passes out of this personnel package, especially with the addition of Luke Musgrave. Diving further into LaFleur's background, Jordan Rodrigue with The Athletic provided a glimpse in how he was implementing some of those concepts he helped Kyle Shanahan put together during their time together. The podcast series called The Play Callers really kind of delves into the star-studded 2013 offensive coaching staff for Washington and where all of them are right now. I'd expect to see a lot more plays out of the pistol formation from this offense that stretch the defense with various pre-snap motions that'll give Jordan Love easier reads in the passing game. The offensive line and the run game are still pretty strong, but like you said, the main noise on the Packers, other than Jordan Love, is going to be the additions to the passing game, and those additions mainly came from the draft. Last year, the Packers added young receivers Christian Watson, uh, Romeo Dobbs and Samori Torre and this year they doubled up and added Jaden Reed out of Michigan State and Grant DeBose another Charlotte alum got a shot another him out. one yes mm-hmm. sir to this episode and then they also added tight ends Luke Musgrave and Tucker Kraft if we can say anything about the Packers this season it's that there are plenty of young weapons for love to grow with and throw to ironically after Rogers Lee's it seems that the cupboard is suddenly full of young receiving talent. With a top 10 offensive line, young promising talent at wide receiver and tight end, and two fairly reliable running backs, Matt LaFleur and Jordan Love don't have a lot of excuses this year. Seeing a lot of discourse around whether coaches make quarterbacks or do coaches get carried by quarterbacks. And in this particular case, LaFleur has looked really good at the helm with a first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback. What his legacy as a head coach will ride on is if he can develop his franchise quarterback and stay relevant in a very weak conference over the next couple of seasons. While all of the media attention and talk about the Packers is going to be how their offense is shiny and new this year, I'm much more interested in how their defense, which should have been one of the more athletic and dominant groups in the league, is going to bounce back. And one of the ways they're going to be able to do that is with the addition of their top pick in the draft, Lucas Van Ness, who's a guy that kind of reminds me of another first-round pick they had in Rashawn Gary, a guy that might take a while to blossom, but once he does, he's going to be really good. He's going to join a Packers D-line group uh, with the aforementioned Gary, Kenny Clark, uh, Devontae Wyatt, Preston Smith. Overall, that should be a pretty daunting uh, rotation, and they should be able to get back to form this year. I don't think Devondre Campbell at the next level is the all-pro player he was two years ago, but if Quay Walker takes another step, they could really be a good tandem this fall. Another player we can't forget about on that defense is journeyman and ex-Panther Rasul Douglas. The cornerback has played some of his best football since he's been with Green Bay. I think he had a pass breakup at the end of a Cardinals game that won them the game, and he's just he's an all-round really sound, solid player to have on your team. Can't believe uh, we let Rasul Douglas get away. And the secondary as a whole also has a lot of talent, and it's another group I expect to bounce back. Jair Alexander is one of, if not the best corner in the NFL. That's some Uh, high praise right there, but I think he's definitely up there. I mean, at worst, what, top three? But I mean, yeah, no, I, I think he's top three, but to say top one, like everybody had, like it has to save that spot. So that's, that's I mean, all. That's it's, fair. It's a lot of praise. Two years ago, he was top one, but the whole Packers defense regressed a bit last year. But uh, yeah, Jair Alexander, uh, Eric Stokes was a first round pick that has a lot of potential and he's really athletic. Hopefully he can take the next step. Darnell Savage is someone I regarded pretty highly and I'm hoping he bounces back. But the Packers secondary has an unsung hero that I'm eager to talk about here. I don't believe I'm familiar with this, this unsung hero. Yeah, not a lot of people are as a uh, player in the secondary, but you know him as a returner extraordinaire, Keyshawn Nixon. They list him as a nickel corner, 
but I mean, we know him as the first team all pro returner who had over a thousand kick return yards, 140 punt return yards in 12 games last season. I mean, he's a first team all pro. He's a beast. And if he gets some snap, gets some snaps on defense, hopefully he can use some of that athleticism to his advantage. I think I vaguely remember a few special teams plays now that you mention it. As a whole, the Packers currently have eight first-round picks rostered on defense. You want to talk about homegrown talent, they have pass rushers in Kenny Clark, Rashawn Gary, and Lucas Van Ness. They have three quality starters on the back end, like you've talked about, in Jair Alexander, Eric Stokes, and Darnell Savage, and a promising young linebacker in Quay Walker. I wasn't a fan of how their defensive coordinator, Joe Barry, called plays at the beginning of last season. But as the weeks progressed, it seemed like he was letting these guys play fast into their strengths. If they can continue to do that going into 2023, that's how they're going to compete for the NFC North crown. I absolutely agree. And to kind of wrap up the Packers here, while we have teams that are trending upwards in Detroit and Chicago, and a team that was just the division champ last year in Minnesota, Green Bay is the one team that seems to be beginning their new era. Like a lot of teams in the league, their outlook comes down to how their new QB is going to perform. The difference with Jordan Love, however, is that he's been in the system or and in the league in general for quite a while now. So the learning curve that he's about to hit should, in theory, be flattened, at least from a knowledge or NFL adjustment standpoint. Yeah, and I think this is probably the Packers' best skill position group when we talk about the wide receivers and tight ends since 2014 when the Packers had Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb, and Devontae Adams. Christian Watson seems prime for a breakout year and could easily rack up over 1,000 receiving yards. It will be interesting to see between Romeo Dobbs, Luke Musgrave, and Jalen Reed who steps up into the kind of second option in this offense. Speaking of wide receivers, our first player on our top 10 additions for the NFC North is DJ Moore, former Carolina Panther. He was part of the trade for the first overall pick. The Bears got DJ Moore, the ninth overall pick, next year's first, and the following year's second. And I think he's going to be immediate value. Plug and play is going to open things up for the Bears offense and is going to give them explosive plays in Chicago. Our second most important addition to the division was on the defensive side of the ball, however, and that's Marcus Davenport. I, I know I said he had a pretty pedestrian uh, career early on, but I just think his importance to a now ravaged Vikings defensive line, is going to be huge. His, his play might determine how good the Vikings D line is as a whole. And then absolutely. I think Davenport, what he brings is going to be tremendous. I think it's going to be almost like a Trey Hendrickson boost up in Cincinnati. I think what hinders him is he was expected to be this superstar because he was drafted with a first-round pick. The Saints traded another pick to get him. That kind of stuff that really uh, raised the bar and expectation we saw for that player. Absolutely. And then the third most important addition is going to be the guy who schemes Davenport up. And that's Coach Brian Flores as the new Vikings defensive coordinator. We hit on it during the Vikings uh, section of the pod. That defense needs all the help it can get. And Flores, being one of the better defensive minds in the league, should have them playing above expectation, which is what they need. Absolutely. And he is going to be the one steady presence in a very, very rocky unit that is going to be working through a lot of different things. Tremaine Edmonds, the new linebacker addition for the Chicago Bears, is definitely what Matt Eberflus wants to build his defense around. He wants long-rangey linebackers that can kind of take up the middle of the field so he can apply uh, pretty much pressure in other parts of the field. And then that leads us into a guy that is on the outside and is actually for the Minnesota Vikings, Byron Murphy. I loved his play at Arizona. He was phenomenal in the slot and the C nickel packages where you'll have Andrew Booth on the outside, Byron Murphy in the middle, Lewis Sign as a safety. You might actually have a pretty good coverage unit if everything comes together the right way. Remains to be seen, but hopefully 
He's a good steadying presence for them at nickel. And another guy who has experience at nickel is our sixth most important addition, and that's C.J. Gardner-Johnson coming to the Lions from Philly. Like we talked about, that Lions secondary last year was uh, not great, and his addition should be in leadership and uh, just his winning mentality. I mean, he was a thumper for the Saints. It brings an attitude. It brings an attitude and made it to the Super Bowl last year. That's what that Lions defense needs, and I think he's going to be – a good eraser slash enforcer on the back end for him. And then one of the guys that he's hopefully erasing would be our seventh most important addition in Jordan Addison, the new wide receiver for the Vikings. Like I said, my favorite receiver in the draft, uh, excellent route runner. And with the attention Jefferson gets, he should be able to put up numbers early in his rookie season. Absolutely. I think this is a great place for him and, followed shortly after at our eighth most important addition is Darnell Wright. I think he's going to lock down the right side of that offensive line. He was an enforcer, not only in the run game, but the pass game. And that was displayed all over his tape. I think he's going to be really, really solid for years to come. I agree. He should help build that wall uh, for Justin Fields in Chicago. Then going back to the Lions for number nine, another secondary piece they added Cam Sutton is our ninth most important addition. I know we touched on him a lot last week. I think he's just going to be a good, solid corner for the Lions, and that's exactly what they needed on the back end. And then our rounding out our top 10 for our top 10 most important additions to the NFC North is running back from Alabama, Jameer Gibbs. I think he's absolutely an upgrade to DeAndre Swift. And running behind that offensive line, his speed and elusiveness, as well as, as well as his ability to catch passes at an effective level, should help uh, keep that offense steady while the uh, Jamison Williams is out. And once everybody's back, should help transform that offense to being even more deadly. We we had a discussion before we put this list together, and it was either going to be Jameer Gibbs or David Montgomery at the 10th spot. And just with as much draft capital they gave away and taking him with the 12th overall pick, I think it was fair to put Gibbs at 10. But that leads us to our honorable mentions group, and we have David Montgomery, who I just talked about, and we also have Emmanuel Mosley, who's coming over from the San Francisco 49ers and helping boost that Detroit Lions secondary. We've already talked about C.J. Gardner-Johnson and Cam Sutton, but he's another body that they're throwing back there along with rookie Brian Branch. I agree. That that Lions secondary should be remade this season. We're going to see what they have to offer. And that brings us to our top 10 losses in the division. And I think number one's pretty self-explanatory. It's Aaron Rodgers. I mean, he's been the Packers for what? The, not the, just the face. He's been the Packers for 15-ish years. And uh, it's not a little bit more than that, but yeah, no, it's it's been quite some time. It's not every day you see somebody of that caliber just leave. Well, he was traded, but he he basically just left. I mean, Peyton Manning, we saw that happen with him, but he was coming back from a season ending injury and he was a free agent. And it's just, it's just tough to, or uh, tough to see and just odd to see in general. So he's going to be, he's going to have big shoes to fill despite not playing to his MVP level last year. Absolutely. When when you see a guy like that leave, it's leaving a massive hole. We saw it in New England a couple years ago when Tom Brady left for Tampa Bay. And it's just, it's weird. It's weird to see a guy that was in one uniform for so long, that made so many great plays, won a championship to, to now be with another team. But that's just the state of the NFL. And the next two guys who switched teams... Uh, one was through free agency, one was trade. They they both played for the Vikings last year, and they'll both play for the Browns this year. And at two, we have Dalvin Tomlinson. He's a great interior presence. He's going to help stop the run. And really, that was what we saw was missing with the Browns last year. And we talked about that in last week's episode. Then they traded for Zadarius Smith, kind of a salary dump for the Minnesota Vikings. They get another good edge rusher, the pair with Miles Garrett, and get after the quarterback, especially on the money down uh, when the clock is ticking and you need to get off the field. Absolutely. And our next player at number four is uh, defensive tackle Jaron Reed. And he's kind of one of the unsung heroes, I would say, 
of the NFL. He's just a really consistent guy. He eats up block or blockers, takes up space, and he'll get you your two to three sacks every year. So you, you kind of everybody needs one or two of those guys on the roster, and losing him is tough to see. And then number five is a guy that we just talked about. It's David Montgomery. I mean, he was probably the Bears. I, I can't say that. Fields was definitely the Bears' best uh, rushing weapon. But after that, it was Montgomery. And I think he's going to have a really good role with Detroit. But I do think uh, Chicago is going to miss him. And clearly, they took uh, steps to mitigate his loss with bringing in Deontay Foreman and Roshan Johnson. That says a lot about what they what they think about how important Montgomery was. Absolutely. And I think it's smart, especially if we're looking at this from the Bears point of view, to get younger at that position. Because when you get a bruiser back like that, really the amount of touches you have really is impactful. Now, we did just see the Lions milk the most out of Jamal Williams, and he was an absolute stud in the red zone. So I expect to see that with David Montgomery. And this is definitely a huge loss by the Bears. Not to be outdone because it's at our sixth highest loss is another running back in Dalvin Cook. In this case, he's still a free agent, but a couple weeks ago, the Vikings cut him, and he hasn't been able to find a home this late in the offseason yet. I could see him signing a vet men deal and really making a push in an offense that makes sense, something that has his own read that's allowing him to kick more outside. Um, he's he's still not 100% with that shoulder, and that was very apparent last year, and it was ultimately why the Vikings cut him, which leads us in to our seventh biggest loss, and it's a speedster that was playing for the Detroit Lions and previously the Jacksonville Jaguars before that in DJ Chark. He's now in Charlotte, North Carolina with the Carolina Panthers, and he really helped, I think, open up the Detroit Lions offense when you have a guy that can kind of take the top off of defense, it forces you to have a, at least a safety or two back. And that open stuff underneath for TJ Hawkinson and Amon Ross St. Brown last year at the top of the year. So I think his presence is going to be missed. And I definitely appreciate what he brings to Carolina. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, Detroit letting him go for sure. And another person that Detroit let go or traded, in fact, is Jeff Okuda. It was their number three overall pick at corner. I know his first couple years were mired by just really nasty injury luck. But last year, his play, while it didn't reflect the level of expectation that he had, I mean, he was being compared to Jalen Ramsey coming out of the draft. He was a really solid corner last year. And I, I think that uh, he's one of the reasons that they brought in so many secondary pieces uh, this offseason was replacing him. And coming in at number nine is another receiver that went to Carolina in this offseason. That's Adam Thielen. Now, he's a guy that's older, right? He, he's getting up there in age. He, he might have lost a step in speed, but he's still a pretty good route runner. He has 30 touchdowns over the last three years. I believe he had seven last year. And what he brings to Carolina is a, a good leadership quality, good experience, and should be a steadying hand in a relatively young wide receiver room that we have. Yeah, I think that's that's the reason why we paid him as much as we did. We had a, a lot of young wide receivers that weren't taking up a lot of cap room, and we needed another veteran presence to help kind of guide them. Coming in at number 10, we have Dean Lowry, a Green Bay Packers defensive end for the past several years, is actually staying in the division and going to the Minnesota Vikings to help kind of shore up some of the losses they experienced through free agency and trade on the defensive line. I think the Packers ultimately mitigated that with the addition of Lucas Van Ness in the draft, but it always kind of like sucks when you lose quality depth, and that's exactly what Dean Lowry is. He's, he's a good run stuffer. He can provide a little pass rush, and that's, that's sometimes what you need with a guy off the bench. Absolutely. Now, every team needs their veterans. Yeah. And every, every fan knows those veterans. That's the cool part about fan bases. You know who those key guys are in your locker room, which is always special. Now we've covered a lot of material so far in the NFC North. I think it's time for some takes. I agree. And so for my first perfect take of this podcast, 
I know Panthers fans and Bears fans have been beefing a little bit on Twitter and on social media. Yeah, there's definitely been been some beef, dude. You you are not wrong about that. And my first take uh, might reflect that a little bit. And that take is that the Bears will have a top 10 pick in the draft again this year, but not from the Panthers. I think the Bears could very well. Let's start. They were 3-14 and last year. Not very good. I think they could very well improve to, say, 6-11, and 7-10. and 10. But as we saw last year, we were 7-10. and 10. The Saints were 7-10. and 10. Uh, The Falcons, I think the Falcons were 6-11. and 11. But those three teams ended up picking 8, 9, and 10. So seven wins doesn't guarantee you not having a top 10 pick. Mm-hmm. I think that's ultimately where they're going to settle. And then I, I have I another... think they're going to be right in that like pick eight to 12 range because exactly like you said, they're going to win about seven or so games. It's going to be an improvement from last year, but it's going to be that fringe top 10 pick. And I love the take. I think it's, it's perfect. Absolutely. Then I have a second take, which uh, I see you also have a similar take. But, it's a little uh, similar. A little similar, yeah. This is the real crazy one. The Lions will win their first playoff game since 1991. That's seven years before I was born. And yeah. I, it may be a little crazy to say just because we've never seen it happen, but I think the Lions, as we'll allude to in our division uh, predictions here in a second, I think they're most well-equipped to win their division which means they host a playoff game, and you never know. I mean, if that offense stays rolling and it's in a dome and golf plays well in domes, maybe they can get that win. I I love what the Lions have done over the past couple of years. I love Dan Campbell. I love what Ben Johnson is whipping up and cooking. And I think they're going to win the NFC North. And I think if they're going to win their first playoff game, they have to win the NFC North in order to host a playoff game because that's where the home field advantage is and where they're going to have an edge against whoever they face. So that's that's my take, is that they just simply win the NFC North. I can't promise that playoff victory. Injuries could come down the slate, and it could impact them based on who they're playing round one. But I do think they walk around, uh, walk away with the division title. My second take, which is a combination of two, is the Vikings will field a top 10 offense, which I talked about earlier, and the Packers will field a top 10 defense. These will be the only two top 10 units in the division. I think everything else will be kind of average or closer to the bottom of the league. I don't think we're going to see greatness outside of these two groups in the division. Hey, you think the Lions offense is going to regress out of the top 10? I, I, and Jamison Williams, without him for six weeks, it'll tank that efficiency. So unless they're just killer down the stretch, which they absolutely could be, it's one of those things that I could see that impacting the season's efficiency as a whole. That's true. And they lost DJ Chark, who would be that guy uh, while Jamo suspended. So I, I can see that. That's pretty, uh, pretty fair. And that brings us to our division standings prediction, which we do at the end of the division breakdowns. And I think this division is a lot more straightforward than last week's AFC North. I think the Lions are clearly the best team. And judging by the take I just had, I think they're ready to do the unthinkable and win a playoff game. So for me, they're first. I'd have to go with the Vikings coming in second. I think the offense will continue to produce and maybe even get better under year two of Kevin O'Connell. And despite the defensive, uh, the woes and the players they lost, I think Coach Flores is going to have the defense playing better. So that means it's going to come down to how Jordan Love performs to whether I have the Packers as third or last. But for now, I'm going to have the Packers in third. I just trust the coaching that they have and their defense as a whole more than I do for the Bears, which means I have the Bears bringing up the rear of the NFC North en route to another top 10 selection. It's it's really hard to dispute that order. Feels like this whole division will all be within four or five games of each other. It's going to be really tight. It's not going to be like a a juggernaut division like we talked about with the AFC North last week, but this these aren't pushovers. The Lions definitely give off 10-win vibes. In the easier conference, the Vikings could go 9-8, and eight, fueled by that top-10 offense I was talking about. And Aaron Rodgers, first year as a starter, if we go back to 2008, the Packers went 6-10 and 10 after going to the NFC Championship game in Favre's last year. 
this first year under Jordan Love, I think the 2023 Packers roster is just too good to fall below eight wins. But you just never know. And like you, you had the Bears bringing up the rear. I think they made a lot of headway this year, but there's still too many holes on defense. I think they're going to be more competitive this year than they were last year and finish with four more wins because of that and come in at about a respectable seven and ten. Fair and enough. Then, so we have the, the same uh, predictions? We, we do at the moment, and we are going to post these as we get closer to the season. The biggest thing is we want to see any injuries, training camp battles, stuff like that. Just a little bit more information before this is concrete. Like you said, I think Jordan Love is, is the biggest thing that might change my mind. I might flip the Packers and the Vikings. But I think the Lions pulled the division out, and we're both in agreement with that. Absolutely. Now, our last segment today, we'll discuss the Carolina Panthers coaching staff. Frank Reich was the first quarterback in franchise history for the Carolina Panthers. And he was coached by first-time head coach Dom Capers. 28 years later, they're together again. But this time, the student is the teacher. During the three-episode series titled The Panthers' Blueprint, the two coaches sit down together and reminisce about how the franchise started. It was really an awesome moment to see Coach Reich and the Dom go over all the old memorabilia from the first year and that first game versus Atlanta, which, by the way, Bryce's first game is versus Atlanta this year. Really makes you reminisce about all the old teams and want to root for the new guys now. If not uh, in general, just to root for the success of uh, Coach Reich and Dom Capers. Absolutely. And it would be really cool for them to, to really be able to put their feet down here over the next several years. Just feels right, as if everything comes full circle a few years before the franchise's 30th anniversary. Now, there are two distinct coaching trees that permeate through this staff. Marty Schardenheimer's and John Gruden's. Frank Reich, Jim Caldwell, and Dom Capers are all tied to Schottenheimer. Reich and Caldwell were offensive coaches under Tony Dungy, who was a defensive assistant for Schottenheimer. Capers was a defensive coordinator for Bill Cower, who was a defensive coordinator for Schottenheimer. So while they aren't directly tied to Schottenheimer, there are uh, second-degree relationships, or if you want to look at it as like a family tree, where Schottenheimer is almost the grandfather to these kind of coaches we have on our staff. This also isn't the first time our running backs coach, Deuce Staley, has coached and worked with Frank Reich. They both coached under Doug Peterson in Philadelphia. Deuce Staley also played for Bill Cower as a player and won a Super Bowl with the Steelers back in 2005. So a lot of cool threads right there, a lot of cool connections, and I'm sure they played a part in how the staff came together this offseason. The Schottenheimer connections on our new staff seem pretty straightforward, but you also mentioned John Gruden as being the other main uh, coaching tree on our staff. Are the Gruden connections as straightforward as the Schottenheimer ones? I, I would say so. Evero coached for John Gruden in Tampa Bay, and then more recently was the secondary coach under Sean McVay. Um, he brings with him from Denver our new linebackers coach, Peter Hansen, cornerbacks coach, Jonathan Cooley, and safeties coach, Burt Watts, to kind of fill out that defensive staff. Todd Wash, our defensive line coach, was the defensive coordinator for what many called Saxonville back in 2017. He was their defensive coordinator from 2016 to 2020 before becoming the Lions defensive line coach the past two seasons, which then makes you wonder, okay, does that connection in Detroit with Deuce Staley? Is that the reason why he comes to Carolina? Um, that, that would be a question a reporter would have to ask. But going back to your point about the John Gruden trees and connections, Panthers offensive coordinator didn't work for him directly, but worked under one of Gruden's prodigies in McVay. He was a part of the Rams organization over the past three seasons. And when you now see our offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator kind of come from the same background compared to Reed's pedigree, you see that there's a little bit of contrast, which I think is good. I think, think coaches will grow and learn from that in a good environment. Absolutely. And, 
you can't go wrong with pulling from the Sean McVay tree. Seems to be a good formula in recent years. We also have some coaches that were a part of the league not too long ago in D'Angelo Hall, who's the assistant DB's coach, and Josh McCown, who's the QB's coach. I think it's always interesting to see the guys that you watched growing up on Sundays become parts of coaching staffs. And McCown in particular, seems like he was built for this. I mean, he was practically an assistant QB coach during his later years anyway. I'm pretty sure he was even on the Jets uh, when Darnold was there. So he's already gotten some practice with some former Panthers. And of course, we couldn't talk about our coaching staff without mentioning the retention of special teams coordinator Chris Tabor and offensive line coach James Campen, who's just got to be everybody's favorite coach. I mean, the guy snapped balls for Brett Favre, and he's been a staple around the league for years now. And anytime we get any type of Panthers content, you always see Coach Campen just going crazy, uh, having fun. Just seems like a, seems like a joy to be around. And both coaches had their respective units last year, being special teams and offensive line, playing at high levels, which is something us Panthers fans aren't really used to. So I'm excited to see them continue their stay here in Carolina. Absolutely. On Panthers Blueprints, it was it was funny seeing Deuce Staley and James Campen kind of have have some friendly banter. It was it was great to see kind of that energy that they both brought to the team. And I'm excited with how that's going to propel itself into the season. James Campen had our O-line, like you said, playing like a top 10 unit last year. And I'm hoping that continues under his tenure. Overall, I love how Reich remains open-minded when it comes to designing the offensive system. When he was the offensive coordinator in Philadelphia under Peterson, Peterson came from Andy Reid. When Reich stepped into his first head coaching role with the Colts, he hired Nick Serrani to be his offensive coordinator, who came from a Parcells-Belichick background. So whether he's been the coordinator, whether he's hired the coordinator, he's usually had a different philosophy and you have to work through together to kind of marry those systems together. And sure enough, in his second stint, he's trying to marry a few of those McVeigh concepts into his own here at Charlotte. And like I've said, I'm super excited and appreciate the different perspectives and the diversity with that coaching staff. It allows, I think, the coaches to grow from each other and put the players in the best position possible to succeed. And for this episode, this this about wraps it up. We thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll catch you guys next week when we break down the AFC East with our dear friend of ours and the first guest of the show, Jack Bitcon. We'll also touch on some key important Panthers training camp dates and what we should expect with a few training camp battles. Until then, we'll catch you guys next time.